Welcome to the Advanced Grass Solutions Turf Hub podcast. AGS is a leading provider of agronomy services, exclusive products, and unrivaled customer support. Underpinned by a well-qualified and experienced team of former sports turf managers. AGS. Supply. Consult. Support. Hello and welcome to the AGS Turf Hub podcast. Today I'm joined by... Jason Buckmaster, course manager at Bramshaw Golf Club, and Neil Rogers. Good morning. Good morning. Well, good morning, gents. I was going to say good morning to you first, but that's fine. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Right, let's just crack straight into it with your vital statistics. Holes? Uh, 36. Hectares? Uh, 350 between the two sites, very roughly. Bunkers? 30 on one course, and six on the other perhaps that's 36 in total yeah lovely okay higher or lower it's when your bunkers rank higher or lower so are you higher or lower than painswick golf club lower higher painswick have zero bunkers. Oh, okay higher or lower than clevedon lower you are higher so you've got 20 golf 20 bunkers higher or lower than Knoll golf club lower Correct. Noel got 69. Higher or lower than Minchinampton Golf Club? Which course on Minchinampton? All of them added together. Oh, okay. Uh, higher. You are lower. You've got 118. Whoa. Higher or lower than Chippenham Golf Club? Lower. You are correct. Uh, Chippenham's 43. Higher or lower than Perrinforth Golf Club? Oh, lower. You're higher. You've got 9. Or maybe 11. You can decide. Uh, higher or lower than Newquay Golf Club? Higher. You are lower. Newquay is 78. Basically nothing but sand. Uh, higher or lower than Trevose Golf Club? Oh, lower. You are lower. 98. And higher or lower than Sinchester Golf Club? I've been by that. Uh, lower. Correct. 54. Mm-hmm. That's not a bad effort. Okay. Bunkers into staff. How many staff you got? Eight, including me. Nice. Um, have you got a mechanic? No. Memberships? Uh, presently 6.40. Lovely. And um, what's your longest hole? Uh, longest hole is the second on the manor and the sixth on the cross. Lovely. And can I get a distance on those? Uh, 5.70 I think, but I, as I go through, I've got no interest in length of holes. No interest <laughs> in golf. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. looks nice. What's your shortest hole? The uh, shortest hole is the twelfth uh, on the post, which I know is hundred and ten. Lovely. And what time is your alarm set for in the morning? Five fifteen. But I've been waking up before the alarm for the last twenty-five years. So. Oh Christ! <laughs> so Jason, it's five fifteen. Five fifteen. What's the first thing you do in the morning? The rude answer or the right answer? Um, <laughs> uh, let the dogs out. Lovely. And what's the first thing you do when you get to work? Uh, is smile and greet the staff. So uh, obviously you've got uh, eight members of staff. Yep. So what's your, what's your sort of t- typical, you get into work, what's your typical day? Typical day is do a quick head count um, because this day and age you never quite know who's going to be on site when. Um, definitely since the, the pandemic. Um, staff turnaround has been quite high, um, so you never know quite. So, quick head count to make sure it fits the plan that I would have done the day before um, to make sure I've still got the amount of staff that I need to carry out that plan. So, quick head count, um, cheer them up, make sure everybody's all right, 
and then make sure obviously the weather and the ground conditions suit the plan that I made the day before. Lovely. Possibly like some of our listeners, Ramshaw Golf Club. I've never been in before, but no idea about it whatsoever. So where are we in the world? What sort of course is it? How many courses you've got? Over to you. Cool. We are slap bang in the middle of the New Forest National Park, um, uh, pretty close to the South Coast. So an amazing part of the world to live in. To its downfall, we're only 70 miles away from London, so that affects everything from house prices to staff retention. But yeah, an amazing part of the world. Um, Bournemouth on our doorstep, South Coast, Isle of Wight, and obviously in the National Park. So amazing place. We are obviously tree-lined. It's a new forest. Um, so we have an incredible amount of woodland and trees, both within the courses and surrounding. Um, we are predominantly on a clay-based, heavy loam soil. We are just off of the Hampshire chalk belt. Um, so it's got its pluses and it's got a lot of uh, negatives as well. Lovely. Um, and you say you've got two, there's two sites? Two separate courses. One is built on um, what we would call traditional parkland. So it was part of, of the landed family that owned most of the village up until recently. Uh, they had about a thousand acres of uh, land around the manor house. Some of it they put back to a golf course. But we've also got Hampshire's oldest golf course uh, as part of the, of the setup, the other 18 holes, which is situated on the open new forest uh, with roaming stock, um, ponies, cattle, pigs, sheep um, that graze freely. So you play in and around the animals. It's a bit like playing on a Serengeti. <laughs> um, and that's slightly different soil composition. It's more of a heathland um, slash moorland. So very, very thin soils. Um, quite high pH um, so yeah they're, they're both completely different sites although they're only a quarter mile apart one is on old parkland and one is on open forest so yeah very very unique lovely well I'm gonna drive into me in fact I did pass some sheep and some 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 yeah. pigs some hairy pigs and well animals I've never seen before <laughs> um, yeah it's a beautiful part of the world it is I, obviously Neil was, Neil was in this morning helps you um we had to do a bit of rustling to move some sheep on this morning it was <laughs> yeah all part of the job isn't it Part of the service AGS provide, I suppose. No, <laughs> AKA the shepherd. Um, so, Jason, tell me about yourself then. So, how, how did you start in the industry? I started off as most green keepers do as a summer job. Um, I was off to sixth form. I was going to be a paramedic, and started here as a summer job. Uh, the head green keeper lived in the village and tapped me up one day to see if I wanted any work. And thirty-five years later, I'm still here. And, and, you're, and obviously you say the village, you, you live locally? You're I, lived, I, lived, the village. Um, I lived um, in the next village down, Lindhurst, which is the capital of the New Forest, um, which most people will know has been probably one of the worst bottlenecks on the south coast if you're trying to get to the, the uh, beaches or trying to get into the New Forest. Um, so yeah, it's a bit, of a bit of a tourist trap. So yeah, that was the little village I grew up in, which is four miles from the golf course. So yeah, I started off as a summer lad. I used to cycle here. Um, back in the depths of the late 80s, cycling on my bike for £2 an hour, uh, rake the bunkers, um, do a bit of strimming, uh, bits and pieces, and by the end of the summer, I'd basically fallen in love with a career that I didn't know existed. Um, nice. Much to my parents' horror, because they thought I was going on a sixth form. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I jacked in my place at sixth form, and uh, on the proviso, my mum and dad were very supportive, as long as I went and did a back in the day, which was 
um, the new training scheme and City and Guilds rather than NDQs. Um, so I signed up with the local agricultural college. Um, I was the first greenkeeper within Bramshaw to go to college. Um, so that was a you know a bit, bit of a bit nice. of a mystery for some of the old boys. So so yeah, there it progressed. Um, was here for five or six years, and golf was booming early nineties. And the business, the family that owned the golf courses, which includes a small coaching in hotel, golf tourism was expanding. Uh, the courses were getting filled up. Members were getting annoyed with the amount of golf that was coming in from the hotel, so they decided to buy another golf course locally and try and build the group. Um, they purchased a sort of a, a failing golf club called Dunwood Manor, which was about six miles from here towards Romsey. Um, and sent me over there to do basically the donkey work. Okay. So I went over and we did a lot of reconstruction and I worked alongside the constructors, a uh, new irrigation system. We built four or five holiday lodges, which were houses, like three bedroom houses for people to stay in. Um, basically redeveloped the whole site over two, three years. Um, learned a huge amount from, from the irrigation blokes and the contractors and the course manager at Dunwood at the time, a bloke called Neil Bungie, was, um, was really helpful. And um, it got to the end of the contract, uh, all the renovations were done, and I was thinking, okay, where do I go now? Because my job at Bramshaw was gone, was taken over by somebody else. Um, and I was very lucky that the director at the time of the family, John Crossway, called me in the office, which I thought I was getting my P45 <laughs> job was over, to say, would you like to take over Dunwood as head greenkeeper? which was a big shock. Uh, Neil was moving on to other things and they offered me the job. Very hesitant because I didn't want to tread on anyone's toes. I was very young, only 24. Um, uh, but it was, well, if you don't want it, we're going to advertise it. Oh, we'd, nice. like, we'd like to give you a punt. So I took over as head greenkeeper at 24. Oh, really young, really good team. Really, you know, they were, they were proper old school greenkeepers um, who probably taught me more than I taught them. Um, but uh, yeah, we muddled along until 2008 when my old boss from Bramshaw retired and they offered me the course manager's job of all three golf courses, so the 36 of Bramshaw and Dunwood. Um, we amalgamated the three together, made them in a cohesive unit, um, purchased power, such forth. Really amazing time for me and uh, hopefully the team. We you know, changed a lot of things unified a lot of things everything was working brilliantly and then unfortunately uh the business was taken over by the younger generation of the family um who weren't that keen on running golf courses and right. in 2012 they decided to sell the land at dunwood for development and um you know just just sell off the land and close the golf course down incredibly sad it was a wonderful little golf course but you know you take a silver lining out of everything i watched and matured and Developed a golf course for 15, 18 years and then took one apart. There's not <laughs> right, many, so yeah, so not many people could tell you they deconstructed something that they spent 70 yeah, years they, building. It must have been heartbreaking at the time. At the time it was. Yeah, at the time. Heartbreaking for the guys that got made redundant, that had been there for millennia, it seemed. Um, it was a real family little unit. Um, it felt like a pub with a golf course <laughs> attached. <laughs> Really lovely team, really long-standing members of the team, like a family. You know, people often talk about that and they throw that around, you know, we're like a family. It was like a family. 
you know, and we all went through each other's grief and, and everything else that you go when you, you get close to people. And it was a really, really sad time. And it's the little things when you've got a long-standing golf course that you don't think about, like all the people's ashes that were spread there, all the memorial trees that were planted for, for 50 years worth of members. Yeah. You know, and all that, all of a sudden, was gone. Those people couldn't go back and visit where their loved no, ones were. No, of course not. So, you know, people need to think about that sometimes when they, they, they invest a lot of their life into a golf course because it's sometimes not forever. Yeah. I mean, we all think it's going to be, and it's not. And, you know, those people still struggle now. I see a few of them, and they can't go back on the land because it's privately owned. Some of the bits of land, the owners have been really good. Yeah. And said, you know, by all means, you know, we're going to have two days a year where you can come and access the woods that were part of the golf course and visit your, you know, your, your loved ones' areas. And they're really good. Others haven't been, as you know, as, as gracious. But there we go. Life moves on. So, yeah, so it was incredibly sad. Um, but, you know, there were silver linings. I ended up back at Bramshaw. They were very, very gracious and said, you still got Bramshaw. You're still course manager. Um, and I got three golf courses worth of golf kit. Because, <laughs> yeah, because I think they, they felt so guilty about us closing and nothing was sold. I, I ended up with six or seven greens mowers and three tractors. And yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we were very well equipped. So, yeah, nice. Yeah. So, so, so you're at Bramshaw, you've got the, you've got the triple SI site and the, the main site. Yep. I say site. Site, main site, yep. two courses. Um, surrounded by trees, I, I, I asked a question, I suppose. Uh, what, what are the issues with sort of having a triple, triple SI site? What are sort of the problems or the uh, restrictions that sort of poses on you as a golf well, player? Normal SI site, there are multitude of problems, and you know there's, there's quite a few golf courses around the country that got triple SIs. So inputs, um, uh, chemicals, bits and pieces, there's always restrictions. We've got the added bonus of this being also a national park. It's a triple SI site, and there's three or four other stakeholders involved with the grazing cattle. Right. So we are, the new forest is governed, it's, it's bylaws and, and different rights of grazing are, are governed by an ancient court called the Verderers, Court of the Verderers, which was conceived during William the Conqueror's times when new forest was laid out as a hunting ground, royal hunting ground. Right. So the Verderers controlled the locals or the commoners who grazed their stock. So the, the stock had to be controlled so they weren't in competition with the deer because the deer were paramount for the royals to hunt going back millennia. The court of the verderers is still intact. They control the bylaws that everybody has to adhere to if you operate on the new forest, uh, you know, aid the running of a golf course. We have to be very, very whiter than white. Of you course. know, we, we run on an operation license if we are seen or deemed to be um, you know, altering or deviating from that. I think I've always found it's, it's you've got picnic battles and some of them just aren't worth fighting. They introduced uh, an MDZ, a nitrogen, nitrogen vulnerable zone, about 10 years ago across the New Forest. It was all to do with a uh, higher level stewardship grant. So, uh, those that don't know about agriculture, most farms get some sort of subsidy. The commoners that graze their animals, and then there are seven and a half thousand animals out on the forest, apart from the deer, they all are owned by somebody. So they all get the same grant system and subsidy system that normal farmers would get. But obviously, they, it's not their ground, it's common ground. It's heathland, it's moorland, it's woodland. 
but they because they draw the grants, they have to adhere to the same rules as other farmers, which is the higher high level stewardship grants. So on top of that is is when you can spread your dung on a normal farm, yeah. when you can fertilise, when you can cut your hedges, all of that implies to the new price. Because we operate within that parameter, we come under the same rules. So I can't put N on the new on the forest side between April and October because we're a nitrogen vulnerable zone. So we can't have any leaching into the streams, into the watercourses. All of my N has to be um, calculated and I have to put in a return, a nitrogen return, which gets added. Now somebody, this is the truth, somebody has been tasked with the job of working out how many animal cowpats and horse dung per square acre or acre across the new forest so they can try and calculate well, how again. much nitrogen has been put on by the grazing stock Christ so almighty. they can submit that to whoever DEFRA now it used to be the European Union uh, grant system so they can work out how much egg has been spread across 92 square miles of open forest that is a hell of a job for someone isn't it poo, poo counting poo counting yeah so obviously yeah. we come into that very minuscule amounts we are sub i'm looking at neil 160 170 last no it's 100 100 100 on the forest, forest and 180 190 yeah. so yeah sub 100 uh kg of n across the site over yeah. a six month period um we try and keep it as organic as possible obviously we're culturally governed by what's going on so we can't spray for weeds we can't do any selectives Everything has to be done by hand. So incredibly labor intensive. Um, and we just have to be very, very clever at what we do. And obviously the amendments, we were talking briefly earlier and we, we said save it for the pod. Um, we thought we found a wonder cure for the greens being seaweed. 10, 12 years ago, I lose track now. Um, little ones would know to us that seaweed is a massive draw for animals. <laughs> sheep dairy in Scotland and uh, on the islands and the Hebrides they go down on the beaches and eat it and if you look on a lot of animal feeds and amendments through, in the livestock industry seaweed is added so we were pumping seaweed onto the forest course greens thinking we'd found the miracle alternative to in yeah it kept the greens healthy they were loving it um, until the ponies started eating the greens and I mean eating now, for you, those of you who want to Google it, it's called geophagia. Be careful what you type in. <laughs> yeah. It's called geophagia, and it's the it, it's feral stock eating soil to gain mineral and nutrient into the yeah. food source. So they weren't just nibbling the grass. They were chewing a good 12, 15 mil out of the green, Christ. eating the root mat, eating the soil because of the seaweed that was locked up in the soil. Blimey. Here we go, we live and learn. Yeah, you certainly <laughs> but it took two years for that to leach out or come out of the system. Right, okay. So we'll start, we'll start on that course for now, so it's much easier. Mm. So over there, you can't do much, but I mean, uh, if we looked at your, say your greens over there, have you, have you embarked on a bit of an overseeding um, programme over there, sort of, you do sort of fence fescues, right? Yeah, we've we predominantly been on a transition. Um, the greens, going back and, and I was a young greenkeeper so I was a little bit unaware of green stored composition it was all about as most greenkeepers are when they're young it was all about the machines anything with an engine on it was mine I wasn't really interested in what was the greens were made up that comes from you know later on so they were predominantly bent fescue 
yeah. I would say 80-90%. Now you'll both from the from the industry, some point during the 80s, the fertiliser industry locked onto sports and amenity, but with a slight agricultural edge. So we're going back 40, 50 years now. Yeah. I remember seeing bags of 50-0-0 Super N in the Christ. shed, not knowing what it was, not even knowing what NPK meant. But they were pumping on this miracle cure to make the greens as green as green. And it was the American effect. It was a televisation of golf, more colour TVs. We all know the story. And they pumped those pure green. And at this point, there was no water on the forest course whatsoever. There okay. was no irrigation. Um, they used to take a bowser up and hand water off a bowser. So everything was very, very unique and old school. Jim Arthur would have loved it. At some point, somebody decided to put an irrigation ring around, which is still only hose points. We've got no pop-ups. It's just, just sprinklers off a hose on a three-quarter main, which pressure drops when Doris at number 43 puts a trowel <laughs> on. But with that came the fertiliser. So they put high-end granular fertiliser on, and all of a sudden, and it didn't take long by all accounts, 10, 15 years, and the soil composition went from probably 90% bent fescue to 40 to 50 yeah and the power crept in okay so we went on a transition when i took over as course manager to try and reverse that we had a really good um uh, steve jingle from stri and we spent a lot of time performance testing on both courses and trying to get that turned around so we could get back to the point where we could start reintroducing the bents we just weren't at that point you know the the, the Top dressers weren't there, there was, there was too much thatch, there was lots of things going wrong, predominantly yeah. caused by the usual situation. Too much air and over watering. You know, it, it, the, the water was going 24 7 up there on these sprinklers when they first got it because they made them green, but green on a course like that wasn't necessarily the right way to go. Right. They were quite happy being brown and mottled through yeah. the summer, but aesthetics are everything in golf now. And, and, and the new generation of golfers came through and said these greens aren't right, there's something wrong with them. And they were putting like concrete. I, everybody you talk to who's an old member and old from the old guard said, you know, the greens up there were, were to die for. For seven months of the year. Yeah. And you've got to take into account the winter months were always a problem. Cattle walking on a soft green are going to leave dents, they're going to leave. Yeah. So, but the soil composition was second to none. So we spent a lot of time and effort trying to reverse that to get back to a predominantly bent um uh, you know composition we are now having conversations um possibly of introducing a little bit of fine rye now again i have to go through natural england because everything i do on the forest course has to be consented by natural england because they are the custodians of all crown lands yeah. which the forest is part of so we have to go through Natural England for everything, for every, every input we put. It has to be consented in our Bible, uh, the management plan. So I will have to run it by them. I can't see it being an issue because the greens areas, they're pretty good about, uh, apart from the chemical inputs, they're pretty good at allowing us to, to top dress. So that's the forest course. I think we've covered most bases on that one. Um, obviously it sounds like the sort of place we could talk about all day. Mm. But to bring it back to um, the course over there, so just the, the manor course. Yeah. Um, so the greens over at the manor, obviously a different sort of site. So what are we doing sort of, um, what are your greens like on this course now? Right, out here, uh, completely different to the forest, as we said. So we are, uh, the standard setup. So we have 
cheese greens uh, collar irrigation um, uh, on a pop up on the on the Gemini system laid out in the late sixties off the back of golf booming uh, the forest course was it was slightly overcrowded the Crossway Air family who own all of the land around the forest course including uh, the hotel in the village and the manor house um, typical sort of landed gentry setup decided they'd have a bit of the action and they would lay out 18 holes on their land private land uh, create a parkland golf course marry it with the forest course and then use the hotel as a clubhouse because the forest course has got no um, facilities or clubhouse even now we've got no maintenance shed up there or, or anything it's all run from, from down on the manor site so they gave up part of the parkland uh, that was part of the uh, the manor um, nothing quite as grand as capability brown but still a lovely track of land um, stereotypical victorian parkland a lot of big cedars and uh, big oaks and, and specimen trees planted around the park very heavy clay um, obviously the new forest is predominantly known for its trees and its woodland there's only one reason that those trees weren't felled during the previous centuries for agriculture was the fact that the ground wasn't suitable for heavy agriculture right. okay so wherever there's a lot of trees the ground is generally not that good um, <laughs> that's, that's the, 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 the sort of the lay of the land so yeah so we're on a, on a heavy clay loam it was laid out late 60s it's had multiple alterations obviously the power wasn't massive when they laid it out every opportunity they've had since to try and lengthen the course there was a big push for championship lengths um, during, the, during the 80s and the 90s. Um, the 87 and 89 storms, for those that you remember them, was a great opportunity because we lost quite a big swathes of woodland around the course, which gave them the opportunity to, to clear up the mess and clear fell what was snapped off and push the greens back, to which they thought was, was great because it, it lengthened the course. But green keeping, agronomy point of view, it's been a nightmare. So it's it's straight into the trees. They're all enclosed. There's yeah. half of the greens here are enclosed in, in, in enclosed trees. Makes for a pretty picture, makes for a nightmare for greenkeeping. So you've got the shade, lack of shade, airflow. Lack of airflow, root ingression, uh, every bit of debris you could think of from, of course, from well, willow, yeah. from yeah. acorns to, to beech mast. Um, so yeah, so we have spent quite a lot of time uh, trying to not upset too many members because trees are an emotive subject but trying to thin the trees and obviously every tree you cut down has to go through being a national park has to go through planning has to go through a felling license so it's not just a matter of slash and burn but i did get a bit of a nickname for, for deforestation when i came back <laughs> um so yeah it's, it's a stereotypical parkland um uh, the greens have evolved we call it organically evolved and if you went round, it would make a great site for the evolution of the self-field golf course. So we have everything from what we would call traditional pop-up, mowed out green with a small herringbone drainage system, usually clay if you go back to the 60s, they were clay tile drains, uh, right way through to a few dubious uh, US spec. So big drainage carpets with not so good root zone. So we've spent a lot of time trying to do soil exchange trying to get the the composition right to make it as free draining as we can we we are pretty much there now the greens are holding their own they're very dry they're very 
um, receptors during the winter. We're not getting that horrible yellowing and the waterlogging that we were getting in the, in the early 90s, mid 90s. Thatch levels were massive. Um, we are on the right path. It's getting two degrees on these heavy clay lungs that is the problem because golf has boomed again during the lockdown. Um, we've seen a massive increase. As every other part from golf course, will sustain heavy loans. Worms are becoming a massive problem. Yeah, and are casting. Um, so we are. The new owners are on a bit of a mission to add more drainage. We did a huge amount during the nineties. Uh, we put in somewhere in a, in the region of ten thousand linear meters of fairway drainage. It's only got a short, you know, it's life. Thirty years later, it's not performing as it should. Um, so we are on a bit of a mission now to, to start that process again. Yeah. Um, but it's an ongoing thing. You know, we're, we're constantly burning drain in, constantly drain in during the winter. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is fun. We, you know, that's maybe why we haven't got as many bunkers as a lot of parkland courses because they knew every time they dug a hole it filled out of water. Right. Um, and unless you can drain it directly away into a ditch or stream, you're on a bit of a hiding to nothing. So. So yeah, it, it's beautifully laid out, very tree-lined, um, traditional greenside bunkers. We are on a bit of a transition of trying to alter some of those. We've gone along the eco-bunker route. Um, we've found that to be the best for our situation rather than some of the blinders or um, you know, the, the, the resin type. Um, it, it's a cheap alternative, I don't think make it sort of, you know, belittle it. It's a cheap alternative for us the fact that it's recycled materials yeah um we can do it in-house with some really good instruction early on from eco bunker and um you know it's working for us and they're, they're tidy they're clean the artificial surfaces a little bit less maintenance but we haven't got masses of bunkers okay. so um it, you know they, they're not grandiose they're not heavily shaped they are purposeful bunkers they're there for a reason um and, and hopefully they enhance the hole um so yeah the bunkering's good um we have got huge tees at some point in my absence when I, when I was at Dunwood, they had a policy that all clay should be off grass. Yeah. 12 months of the year. We went away from mats. Um, they were doing a lot of drainage. So with drainage comes spoil. And I think they just use it as an opportunity to extend every tee on the place. Okay. I have about uh, just over a hectare and a half of teeing area. They are ginormous. And as fertilizer salesman, it's good. Always a silver line. <laughs> yeah. But that little bit of extra cost, if you if you take it out, you know, what's a decent mat these days, even if you wanted to play off it, 300 quid. If you want to go to Hutch Tees mat or other mats are available, uh the artificial turf <laughs> mats. Mostly put. <laughs> yeah. the, um, you know, you're talking fifteen hundred quid for a three by three, two thousand quid maybe on the bit out of touch with it. We haven't done one for no a long idea. time. Yeah. So if you add all that up and member satisfaction they would rather play off even if it's a very thinning sward of, of rye they would rather play off a piece of grass than they would a rubber mat so they went along this this philosophy which is great but obviously there is a long-term cost implication obviously they've all got to be fed and, and you can't really leave one part of it during the summer months and leave it because obviously your assessments going to go out the window and look stuff so we tend to maintain them all at the same height obviously the beaten out areas from the winter are, are given a good treatment during the spring to bring them back overseeding um but obviously it's a lot of water and a lot of feed but it does 
what the members want. They want Perfect. So you so mentioned seeding um, and rye, so I'm assuming you're obviously with, with, with rye grass? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we went the dwarf rye route a long time ago. I, you know, as soon as it started to, to evolve and I, I, it came up on my radar, um, we went along that route. Um, you know, and it works for us, especially on the, on the winter tees where you are basically overseeding 80% of the sward. Yeah. Um, you know, to get something back, and it and it, it really does tick all the boxes for us um, because we know it's going to be gone again. You know, it's it's, it's a one hit wonder for the, for the season. Yeah. We're not we're not looking for perfection in our teeing areas. We're looking for we're looking for a good colour. We're looking for a, a good hard sward that will you know do things right. How many members actually get down on their hands and knees with a magnifying grass? You know, we, I think as an industry we have to be careful. We don't become a bit of a, a mockery of ourselves. You know, we can become too pretentious sometimes about being pure. Yeah, but I've got some green on, on teas is fantastic. Yeah. I mean and as I just I just said green then, but quite frankly yeah. we were saying earlier there's some yeah. there's some you've greens got, on, you've on, got on, to be on prepared. Don't don't be don't be afraid of trying something. No. Um fertilizer wise, sorry, so fertilizer wise on the back on the teas. Um, is that like a slavery fertilizer in the spring, and, and that's you that's you for the year, and some liquids over the top, or yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, we we try and put a bit of a uh, slow release on during the spring, and then uh, we had a really good pre-pandemic, good system in place where we would foliar feed with uh, BGR, yeah, um, and it was difficult to maintain once the staffing levels started going a bit awry, and we had people on furlough. You just couldn't keep up. We were struggling to keep on top yeah. of greens programs, let alone an hectare and a half of, of feed. So yeah, we go granular now. Um, we'll 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 chuck a bit, you know, mid range end on in a foliar form before club champs or something, just to give them a bit of colour, a bit of liquid iron, and then um, a, a slow release going into the autumn. Um, and that, that seems to survive for us. It's you know, it's, it's, we don't want over hectare and a half of teas and we're cutting them with a 3250 box so I don't want a huge amount of grub. No. Right so uh, I think earlier on you mentioned that you had eight staff? Eight staff. Obviously you've got a, a, a size of site. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you manage your staff? Well we try and mix it up. I don't have two teams. Uh, I've got a couple of uh, elder members of staff. Um, Bob, uh, Bobby and Clyde and Bob especially is, is Forest born and bred, he loves the forest course. He, he's worked up there since the 70s. Yeah. Um, and for, for those of you that are young enough, that's a long time ago. Um, he's been off and done various things, but just keep, you know, came back again and, and he's stayed for the last 25 years on this stint. So I must be doing something right. Um, <laughs> but he loves it up there. Um, so Bob will probably be the mainstay of the forest, and then he'll have one, maybe two with him um, early on in the morning. We'll get the course set up done. Because the forest is low input, so we can only mow the fairways twice a year. Okay. So that you know you're not looking at. I treat it as a nine hole as far as staffing levels. Yeah. So you know we, we do two cuts a year on the on the fairways. Greens and tees are treated the same, so they're cut not as much as the manor. Tees are probably cut every ten days, two weeks. Yeah. Sometimes we don't cut them in, in the heat. Some of will run rotary brushes over, so we still get stripe. But it just cleans them up. Yeah. We, you know, because the pony nibbled down to about yeah. 15, 18 mil. So, so with the fairways, is the rest of that done by grazing or um, animals? Absolutely. Cattle? Yeah. We cut twice a year just to keep 
any road grass is down, there's a little bit of heather ingress, not a lot, bracken. Yeah. Um, and it just cleans them up and we try and do one as late as we can because then it gives us a definition between fairway and rough so we can do preferred lines. Yeah. And you do need a preferred line on the forest because you know, you, you'd hardly tee up on a cow pack. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, teas and greens up there are, are, are pretty much the same. The greens are treated exactly the same bar the inputs, but they're still cut every day. They're still very cut. They're still aerated. They're still dressed. We have a, an amazing system in place for dressing. We're doing about 200 tonne a year. Um, we have course closures. So everything is treated the same. So the staffing between the two courses moves about. I, I like to keep them frequent. Oh, the, the forest course is unique, but it does become quite soul destroying as a greenkeeper. You know, when you repair the green the day before from 80 head of cattle being sat on it all night, and then you go back the next day and it's exactly the same. Yeah. So I try and mix it up so they don't get too despondent. And also, intensive mowing on the manor becomes quite arduous and quite exhausting so just to mix it up so for argument's sake neil you're up the forest today you're going to go hand watering it just breaks it up yeah. and, and gives people a broad spectrum of what they're up to but generally it works two and two and six brilliant so two and um, four, six down here how about um are any of your are any of your, any of your <clears throat> excuse me and are any of your team golfers yes yeah, not many, but we've got, we got two or three. Um, uh, yeah, Amy, uh, our first female greenkeeper, um, she's a deputy uh, at the moment, deputy in training. My deputy is on the verge of, well, not the verge, he's close to retirement. Yeah. Um, so we're doing a bit of succession training, ready for, for when Clyde does retire. He's 70 this year, so um, uh, I think he's got few years left in him they don't want to leave me <laughs> but, um, so yeah Amy Amy plays she played at quite a high level as a junior yeah uh, in the Hampshire ladies sort of uh, remit and um, yeah Bruce plays a fair bit he's actually a, a club member and he's quite heavily involved in, in the club golf um, yeah one or two Bob plays the forest he only plays the forest course Bob um, he'll play on a Wednesday afternoon with a couple of mates and um, yeah they might get nine holes in before the beer starts pulling, but um, yeah, yeah, they get up there and, and, and enjoy the forest course. But yeah, so yeah, we've got a, a good smattering of, of golfers. Decent. Um, and uh, out of your staff, who's got the best lunches? Amy seems to have some nice. She's only been here sort of a year, Amy, but she does bring in some nice little boxes of, of um, pasta and stuff like that, which all of us probably should be eating rather than pasty. Yeah. But, um, and yeah, most of them are uh, most of them are pretty. And who's got who's got the worst lunch? Well, name and shame. <laughs> I, I don't know really. It it varies. Some of them, they all disappear down the calf. Uh, <laughs> I had a lad here who left recently that his his diet consisted of those dairy cheese strings and Red Bull. Oh no! Um, but at the moment they're all nice. pretty they're all pretty good. Um, you know, there's, there's some sort of packed lunches now and again. You'll get you see ones obviously falling out with with his wife or girlfriend and, or, <laughs> or, or mum usually yeah. has made his sandwiches and he's up and down the shop buying stale sausage rolls. But yeah. Right. Right. Nobody has anything really exciting that I'd like to steal, put it like that. Right, okay, so um, what's in the shed? And I'm talking sort of, uh, we're going to front my machinery. Obviously, you've mentioned a lot of kit, so mm. just do, do your main. Predominantly Toro um, on the cut in front, uh, 3250s, bits and pieces, fairway cutters all Toro, um, and John Deere for a few of the extra sundries. We run a lot of John Deere gators because of the movement between the two sites yeah so we run diesels we've 
toyed and skirted with the idea of electric, but at the moment it's not for us because of the site-specific distances that they have to travel. The furthest green away on the forest from the yard, from the site, is just over a mile and a half. Right, okay, so it's, it's some distance. Yeah. So batteries don't seem to be the way to go at the moment for the machines. So, so we're all still sucking beaver at the moment. All right, and what's your what's your what's your um what's your favourite bit of kit that you own? <sighs> when the Verti drains came out, yeah, that was that was a good one. At the moment, we just purchased the Ventrac with with a bucket load of kit for it. Right. So. But if you ask any greenkeeper anything that's new and it's a toy we love, yeah. you're just gonna get bored of it. And what's your favourite bit of kit ever? Ever? Yeah. As a greenkeeper of old, it would have to probably be the Greens Triple because when I started here, we were mowing pretty much all three, all both both courses on Bramshaw with old rents and surtees. So we'd do six greens each or seven greens each, and then come down and do seven greens on the other course. So we were doing. So I, I know very little of machinery. So the old ones, or is that the old one? Hard, hard work. Hard work. Yeah, if, you imagine, if you imagine, if you imagine, you know, if you went back and saw an old photo of a old bearded greenkeeper with a green mower, they were all green. They were yeah. all ransoms. Um, big manual clutch, uh, roller, no transport wheels. So you basically tipped it backwards so your blades didn't hit the ground. So you were pushing down like you were on some sort of chopper, and you wheeled it like this. Oh, hand, hand push, sorry. And, well, they, they would drive, yeah. but they, we didn't have the transport vehicles like they have now to wheel them up on a little lovely little trailer behind a gator or a oh, okay. gator and move to the next green and get your blower off and get your swish. We walked. We yeah. walked. Blimey. We not only did we walk six greens, we walked between the greens. Yeah. And then all met back and then put them on a tractor and trailer and carted them back down the road to, to the manor and then did the manor. Wasn't for very long. Yeah, they bought the first Greens Triple, pretty the same sort of summer I started here, eighty seven, the petrol Toro. But so we only had one, so we'd alternate. So one day we'd mow the manor with the triple, and we'd hand cut the forest, and then we, no, you know, good courses. Okay, good courses. Courses with staffing, good staffing numbers will still hand cut. You know, any any tournament golf course will hand yeah. cut. We know it's beautiful and it's. But it's labour intensive. Yeah. Um, so, and expensive. So what's what's the biggest change you've seen in the industry since, since obviously you've been in a long time, so sort of day you've started and, and to now, what's the sort of biggest change you've I, seen? I would I would probably say machinery has been the one biggest thing. I whereas you said 30, 40 years ago we were green keepers, I would I would go so far to say that three quarters of your shed are machine operators now. Okay rather than green keepers they operate very very expensive bits of kit yeah the kit 30 40 50 60 000 pound bits of kit and they are machine operators and if you can find one or two within that group that have got an aptitude for green keeping and understanding greens and agronomy brilliant but most of them and my old boss used to call them bums on a seat but they are machine operators yeah, you know, and if they, if they think something, it's expensive, and you know, I think that's a fundamental problem in this industry is they are not recognising the fact that they aren't just bums on seats. You know, they are looking after one of your most expensive purchases.
Yeah, of course. They're skilled people. They're skilled like green keepers. Green keepers are skilled people yeah. and they're not recognised. You, you can go and sit on a, on a 30 ton digger on the side of a motorway for 17, 18 pounds an hour as a skilled operator. So that's no different to somebody sat on an 80 thousand pound railway car. No, of course not. No. So, you know, that would be probably the, the biggest thing. The, the, the Just how much machinery has come away from because we are basically an agricultural offshoot. If you look at the history of golf courses and greenkeeping, everything that's happened has come off the back of an agricultural effect. Yeah. Feeds, chemicals, you know, the base models that you're using within agriculture, they just feed sweets and modified, you know, and that would be the second biggest thing is, is the, the, you know, the emergence of the, of your sector as, as sort of inputs. You know, we were putting on prills back in the late 80s and they were basically agricultural prill. Yeah, so big size. Big size, like yeah. track and a half split peas on the green. <laughs> and then, you know, and everything else that came with it. Oh, there's a big green blotch, there's a green blotch. You know, yeah. none of the controlled leases, releases were there. You know, it, you look now, you know, and we all know that the demise of some of our most prominent chemicals for pesticide diseases are still available within the ag market. Yeah, that's true, that's true. You know, we're being... I think we're duly persecuted. I get it. I get it, you know, and, and I have members before that have had reactions to selectors. They've had reactions to to carb energy. Yeah, you know, we've, we've had to manage it, and, and I get that the general public are, you know, it's not just a park where they're, they're walking across. You know, they are, and we all say it, Anthony, please don't lick your golf balls. Going very plain story quickly. I was 17 years old, and a lady golfer came up to me when I was on a sprayer. I hastened to have about a license because you could do that back then in the 80s and uh, and said what are you spraying and I told her she said my husband licked his balls once and his legs dropped off <laughs> uh, to a 17 year old yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> she's still shaking her head now I can see her so as I fell off into the cushion with a small bit of weed coming out of my yeah. chest um, so yeah you know so machinery has been massive so but, but, but now you mentioned disease that's out on the course. So you, is there any sort of disease that you um, you're up against, you struggle, or you get very regularly? Fusarium, yeah, fusarium is, is is a go-to. I mean, you've got a fifty percent power sword with all the things that we've discussed. Very shady, very shady, all of those things. Bar bar bar. Yeah, we're we're gonna get hit. <coughs> we're gonna yeah. get hit. Bit of dollar spot. Little bit of dollar spot. Bit bit of anthrax. Uh, yeah, you know all all the things. One thing we don't actually is, is red thread um, because we are on such heavy clay soils, you know, the nutrient levels of the roots can get down there. Of the none. It just grows like silage as it was 40 years ago, which is a hay and silage field. So, um, but yeah, Fusarium is, the, is still the biggest. I think closely followed. I mean, we've had some leather jacket issues. Um, we were lucky enough to secure a um, silicone license this year. Um, we're waiting to see obviously whether that's been successful i haven't had any pecking yeah which is our first sign we don't suffer too badly with badger damage down here although it's the new forest this area of the new forest is quite low lying and wet and the badgers tend not to set here they don't have too many earths or sets because the ground's too wet yeah and it floods out in the winter so we don't get these digging but the crows can be a real problem that i haven't seen brilliant so we're fingers crossed that we might have, we might have hit on something here. Worms are our biggest problem. The, yeah. the, the demise of, you know, 
I'd say I'd go back on, you know, I might look quite youthful, don't laugh me. Um, I remember my boss spraying out here and it looking like Armageddon the next morning for yeah. worms. Just flipped the lot. And then with that, obviously, came the secondary poisoning. You know, I remember not seeing a blackbird or a thrush. Right, okay. For years. Oh, so, so they're obviously eating the, they're eating the, eating the, the worms, worms the, the, the chemical. And, and I'm not saying it was a direct poisoning. It's like, you know, eat one, they're going to die. But obviously, when you've got thousands of worms over, over a plane surface, yeah. they were eating, obviously ingesting so many that the residue poisoning was affecting them. Yeah. We definitely noticed blackbirds and song thrushes were for sure. And they've come back? Yeah, I mean, we've, what we're doing out worm control now. Eat, uh, six I, years? Six seven years? I mean, I'm yeah. going back to the days of, of, of uh, horrible... The eight, the eight is... Uh, mercury, mercury Oh, yeah, that sort of shit. Okay. Copper. That sort um, of thing, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, when we went to carp, then was in, it, it wasn't as bad. Obviously, that was an irritant. Um, you know, and I do, I, we do miss it. We do miss it. We played with the purities. We played with various things. Like torture of tag, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. To no great success, really. We just come down to the fact that we've got to pick and choose when we go out and, and we try and brush and it's dry and spread the world past. Yeah. Um, but it is becoming a real a real issue for us. And, and, and it's off the back of, you know, the elephant in the room. It's off the back of really changing weather patterns. Yeah, it's just a, the milder winters. Oh, yeah. It's a massive, massive we're issue. Mowing, we're mowing, you know, and I'm, like, say, I can hark about, I'm old enough to remember mowers being parked in the shed in November and not coming out till Easter. Yeah. Because they didn't need to come out. We serviced most of it in house. Later on, it, you know, we started using outside contractors. But, you know, we weren't mowing. We weren't out there with cylinder mowers at Christmas. No. It's unheard of. And now you are, but you, you're trying to mow in very damp conditions and, and, and very worm-infested fairways. And with that comes smearing. And the moment you smear worm cast, especially on a play-based golf course, it's like capping off a... Yeah. You know, you're just capping off the surface. It, it goes like puddling clay. You yeah, can smear it. It's like silver, you know, silky, and it will smear. And, you know, it looks horrendous. We've gone to a lot of rotary cutting now. Yeah. The vent track has got actually got a small deck on it, um, a finishing deck, which we didn't use this year. We didn't get it in time, but we will probably go out. It takes a while, but you're better off with a fine um, rotary mower than you would try and cylinder cut. And also the cost implications of running the cylinders over worm cast. It's like grinding posts. Yeah. I did I did see um, there's some guys who've started, um, guys who've got bad worms in their fairways, that sort of thing. They're doing. Um, they've started mowing in the frost. We are. We are no, ignoring that. Yeah, I don't know who tried that, but it, there seems to be three or four people doing it, and it, it didn't seem to be having. Um, and uh, you know, it's the curse of the social media. It, it, you know, it's it's the fear of missing out, and, yeah. and you see your best mate and everybody on Facebook laid on the beach, and it's like, oh, their life's better than mine. And then you see <laughs> greenkeepers of distinction, some of them. I won't mention any names, mowing in the frost. And you think yeah. that goes against every <laughs> principle in the book. I don't care about it. It's wrong. And, and that's all <laughs> I'm going to say about it. And until somebody bends my arm and says, go out and cut them or you're losing your job, it, it won't happen on my yeah. watch. All right. If you um, can't play on a bit of long grass during the winter and accept it is winter golf, and it's all about managing expectations. Yeah. 
people aren't managing their members' expectations anymore. They're bowing to pressure. All right, well, and, um, and it's a tumbling block, isn't it? Obviously, we're in a forest and you're, you're surrounded by trees. Who does your tree work? We do uh, predominantly most of it in-house. So anything okay. that can be done um, under uh, under legislation, obviously they're, they're ticketed, it's 31s and 30s. So the guide bar length, we can drop ourselves and then everything else is done by our subcontractors flying in work. We supply all the wood. We used to supply all the wood, most of the wood for the estate. So when it was one big estate, so the manor house, 30 or 40 estate cottages with uh, farm manager and various other yeah. staff, we would supply logs and they would all be processed and everybody would have a dinghy of the logs. That's obviously changed now because the golf course is, is a standalone business owned by somebody else, but we still supply logs to the hotel. Yeah. Um, so that's a nice little uh, winter project we get out and, and you know any hardwoods we can store and, and process and uh, gives us something to do on a frosty morning. Brilliant. Yeah, good. Good, isn't it? Someone's around us, screwdriver, and I'm like, so golf for me is out. 
so my thing is is uh, is fishing. I've always fished. Oh nice. So uh, any any discipline, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'm not very good at fly fishing. I've got to improve on that. I'm actually going next month, but I've managed to book a day what they call Duffers Week, which is <laughs> when all of the hatches happen, all the mayflies happen, all the all the bugs come out mid June, and the fish go mad for a feeding frenzy. And, and you can basically pick a fag butt on the water and catch. So that's when I'm going. <laughs> yeah. So nice. yeah, sea fishing. We had a really good trip last year, which Neil came along. I think it was the first time you've had it. It was good. Yeah, really good. Yeah, really we good. took Neil out and we caught some big different. congers and stuff. So yeah, bit of fishing. Um, won't get into any political debates, but I I shoot as well. Um, at New Forest. It sort of goes hand in hand. Yeah. Um, I come from sort of family background, involved with agriculture and and forestry. Um, there's always been a gun somewhere within the house. Um, so yeah, I shoot. Um, uh, I'm involved with two or three pheasant shoots um, and working the dogs. I've got two two cocker spaniels, uh, gun dogs, which take up a huge amount of time. And of course, the obligatory family. Yeah. Um, they they take up a lot of time. Yeah. I wouldn't have it any other way. But yeah, the kids kids are a massive part of my life now. Um, they're 15 and 10, both into everything you could think of. Um, I used to laugh at mates who said we're the dad taxi. It is exactly what you turn into. Um, I think I have one evening a week where we don't have to be anywhere or drop off or pick up. So, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, you know, opportunities are there for them, and um, why wouldn't you help? You know, facilitate that. So yeah, they're both into their rugby and uh, um, kayaking, and they're in the Sea Scouts and they're sailing all the time because obviously we live very close to the water. So yeah, so the family uh, and obviously my beloved wife who I wouldn't be able to do in, you know, most greenkeepers would say the same. Anybody that's willing to have an alarm clock going off at anywhere between half past four and half past five in the morning. Yeah. It's, it's got to be something a little bit special and um, you know, because however you try you don't go back to sleep properly. So um, I would say I was like a mouse creeping out of the house. She was probably the <laughs> so yeah, that's 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 how I do it. Obviously, we live in an amazing part of, of the world. Um, so walking is is a big part of our life. We walk the dogs a lot, um, and obviously, there's a lot of nice pubs in between those walks. Yeah, both past the energy. Yeah, so you can walk or cycle. Kids love their, their mountain bikes, so we um you know we do cycle a lot as a family. And we, you know, we don't have to go on the road for all those people that are like bloody cyclists. Um, there's hundreds of miles of gravel tracks in the New Forest. It's just an amazing place to take the kids on their bikes when they're young. Oh, lovely. With no cars. So, yeah, that's how, that's how, how I switch off. Nice. Uh, the wife's big into her gardening. We've got quite a big garden and veg and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I don't get too involved with what's going in the ground. I'm just a big digger. Yeah. Yeah, like I don't do enough at work and then have to go <laughs> home and dig vegetable beds. Fair yeah, it's all it's all good. Right, so back to the course then. Um, back to the course. So, what's your uh, what's your favourite hole? Probably the twelfth on the forest. Yeah. Uh, so obviously painted a picture. Painted a picture. So we've got a uh, a valley with a small stream running through it, bracken down through the carry, uh, and it's the only green on the forest course with bunkering. Very. And it's all carry, yeah. Um, lovely little green, tiny little traditional greenside pot bunkers. Um, it's just a pretty little hole, and it's you've got the, the big enclosure behind you with some pines that were planted between the walls, so they're getting to real maturity now behind you. Um, and then now looking back across the course, we've 
uh, you know, the ponies and the cattle and some big beaches out on the open areas. It's just a very, very pretty little, and, it, and the fact that it's the only one left of its original 1880 bunker. Oh, lovely. It was laid out in 1880. Uh, most of the bunkers were filled in between slightly after the First World War, during the First World War and the Second World War, because they just didn't have the labour to look after it. Right, okay. And what sort, of, what sort of distance? That's that's 120. Just par three then? Par three. Lovely. Yeah, yeah just, to, just to carry over the valley. But Happy days. Just a, just a pretty little hole. Um, and what's your dream hole? If you, would you have a dream hole? Yeah, 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 yeah. It would be, you know, and and, and it's not because I've got a good friend who's who's just gone to Broadstone, and uh, I particularly like Broadstone as a court. I like Heather. I like people in court golfing. Yeah. So anything, anything really that kind of cult designed, that yeah, just that carry with some big bunkering. You know, heather clad bunkering around it. Yeah. Um, nothing too hard. I don't like a walk. So <laughs> yeah, nothing path. too hilly. No, no, no. Nice little valley just to walk up. Yeah. Um, I, I particularly like that. Um, yeah. So that, you know, anything anything heather clad, you can, you know, they are just on the belt. We're on the belt of the real people on the golf courses here. So they're, they're, you know, I've got chalk one side of me, and obviously the sandy people on the golf courses of, of Dorset my west yeah so but you go out around you know you, you're going into the chalk territory of, of real winchester and uh, high posts and salisbury and suffolk beautiful down on golf courses and we're just in the little play belt so you know your neighbor's grass is always greener but yeah there's some there's some there's some pretty little holes out there but yeah heathland nice no, um here's one um what do you think uh where do you, where do you see the future of greenkeeping, so 10, 10 15 years down the line, mm. crystal ball. Crystal What's the ball. future of greenkeeping? Uh, there's no denying that it's going to be more automated. We had a very interesting spat not spat a, a conversation within one of our WhatsApp groups with some peers within the, within the industry, and they were both lamenting how they could access their irrigation systems on their phones. This, yeah. is, this is half eight, nine o'clock at night. I won't tell you my reply, but switch off, boys. Um, <laughs> so I think we will go more. Right. There's some of an industry close to home who think we're going to go along the American model, where we have a superintendent or a very, very, very highly qualified course manager with just a load of thumbs on seat. I think a lot of the mowing, going back to the ag sector, the ag sector is always a leader. We come off the back of it. John Deere is a nice company, not so much Toro, but I think that there will be a lot more automated mode. Yeah, I think it, not necessarily you won't lose operators, but the machine operation will become so technical. Laser, satellite, whatever. GPS. And GPS. Yeah. It will. will it, I think it's going to go that way. I think. I think the staffing numbers will. Unfortunately, decrease, yeah, because of costs. So, Joe Patel, I mean, I, I, I don't like looking in the crystal balls because it never comes true. But if, if you'd have turned around to my younger self and said to me, you know, everybody would be on a ride on mower when I first came into greenkeeping, you wouldn't be shoveling sand on greens. I, you would have laughed. 
because that is what you do and that's what you, you don't know what's coming around the corner you can yeah. give you a fool to try but i definitely think there's no however much i personally try and fight technology um because i like hitting things with hammers and spanners <laughs> yeah um it, it will be there will be a lot more of what we're doing now so you know it's been heading that way for 15 20 years there will be a lot more performance everything will be data led for sure yeah um you know you can't just go in there with the knowledge and say i know what it's you know why aren't we doing performance rather well, with the power seeing they'll want technical data to back that up for your case it's yeah because you're only as good as your last meal i i hope it doesn't happen but i can see it happening i think pressure and stress levels will get worse yeah definitely the days of my old head ring kid was sticking his two fingers up at the old club captain and yeah, as long as I'm chopping in his motor and going, well, we'll be back tomorrow, we can sort this out tomorrow. Now, everybody seems to be taking everything home with them, and it yeah. worries me. Um, this is a simple way. It's, it, we're not, we're not highfalutin. We're not, we're not building nuclear power stations. I think, you know, we're partly to blame. We've, we've, we've bigged this industry up. We've put ourselves on a pedestal. Now we've got to perform, and if you're not performing, you're out the door. Yeah. You know, you've only got too many second chances when you get to the top levels of this industry. If you don't perform, you're out the door. Um, members, what are our worst habits? Obviously, obviously, we all love our members, and uh, it's, it's great to have membership. But um, they have got some bad habits. Uh, I'll, go away. I'll go away because I expect you have everybody going. I don't repair the pitch master. Don't repair. Do you know one of the biggest bugbearers? And it and it, it's it's not just golfers. It's life. It's litter. Now, yeah. I live in an amazing part of the world, and I have lost count of the amount of times I've pulled Coke cans, drinks bowls out of holes in trees, rabbit holes, you name it, uh, and it annoys me. And one of the biggest things is banana skins, because they think they're biodegradable. <laughs> yeah. And they are. I timed one once, yeah. out of, just out of boredom. Uh, I, I saw it in a tree, it had been flung from a, from a tea into the tree by the side and I looked at it and it was three months before that started again. Enough that it fell out of the tree. Right. And it, you know, black banana skin hanging out of a tree. The bin was closer to the, than the tree was. Yeah, that's bad. So, that's so awful. Litter would be one of my biggest things. Um, yeah. yeah, they, they, they've all got their quirks and, and everybody every one of them knows how to be a greenkeeper but you know we can talk about that as long as it's bad. um i personally i don't think that's as bad as it used to be uh you know we do know this and they've always got an input but it's healthy you know they've got a vested, especially if it's a members club they've got a vested interest but um yeah the the littering thing just beggar belief there's 27 bins on this golf course yeah. and uh they somehow can't carry Oddly enough, we took a lot of the bins out because a lot of them had handles on. You know, when we were all being quite a pandemic, type pandemic, thing. everything was like, don't touch anything. You know, and we did start letting golf out, and it was an amazing boom for six or eight months. But the bins are one of those things. Oh, we can't have bins because they've got to lift the lid, and everyone's going to be touching the lid. When we didn't have the bins out there, the litter went down. So we'll work that out. Really? Yep. It's like what other people said about the rakes though, in bunkers, isn't it? Yeah, mm. true. So I guess the same thing applies here. If your modern day self could offer any words of wisdom to your 
young yourself, what would it be? Don't be afraid to try new things in all walks of life, but predominantly green leafing. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to try something. Um, even if your head's saying, don't do it, don't do it, you know, try it. Try a new practice. Try, try a new way of doing things. Might not work. But at the end of the day, if you don't try it, you'll never know. Yeah. So, you know, and I did. I made, I made a lot of mistakes. I had a very, very understanding owner. And I made a lot of mistakes when I went to Dunbar. I was 24, I'd only just passed my level three. Uh, yeah, I made a lot of mistakes and he was very good at facilitating me to make those mistakes. And, and of those mistakes, I I became a better greenkeeper. So yeah, don't be afraid to try things. Put yourself forward. Brilliant. Well, Jason, that's, that's been an absolute pleasure. Really excited for us. It has been great, actually. I, I, I can't, this is you, really. Oh, but, thank um, you. Thanks at some point, I've got to end the podcast. So, um, well, Jason, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a really insightful, uh, well, actually, hour or so, I think. In fact, that might even be the longest Green Club podcast oh, ever. <laughs> please, please edit. Even, even, even <laughs> after edit, it might, yeah, we might, might break a record on that one. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been uh, fascinating, actually. So, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, thank well, thanks, yeah, thanks for doing it. So, uh, this has been the Turf Up Podcast. I've been Joe Hendy. I'm Neil Rogers. I'm Jason Buckmaster. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the Turf Up Podcast. Thanks for listening to Advanced Grass Solutions Turf Hub Podcast. For more information, visit advancedgrass.com or follow us on socials using the handle at advancedgrass.